A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The word of the Lord. The Bible makes it very clear. It makes this clear, at least. Jesus died for our sin. Now, the hard part is that word sin. It actually is not an easy thing to get our heads around in this current culture, no matter how we've grown up. Look, if you've grown up as a modern American in a largely religionless home or background, then you'll understand this concept, and it's common to all of us, that who's to say what sin is, right? It's really each one is allowed to choose his own path so long as he doesn't harm anyone else. That's called relativism. And it's the basic idea that anything goes so long as you don't harm or restrict somebody else's freedom. And if you kind of buy into this mentality, the problem with the world is those who want to restrict freedoms. And in particular, it's probably religious people. 
Now, if you come from a religious background or even just traditional culture of any sort, traditional cultures around the globe, it, you do have a very strong sense of morals and of right and wrong. But really, you've probably grown up on a bunch of rules and with a lot of guilt. People from traditional and religious cultures are very good at feeling guilty. Um, some of us have grown up with that and just know what it's like to walk around feeling guilty all the time. Many of us come from that culture and think what the world needs is more laws. And the problem with the world is those people who have no morals and don't realize that I have the rules and the laws. The gospel does something different. We've talked about that here before at CCV. In the gospel, Jesus redefines sin. He redefines sin in relation to himself. Sin in the gospel is always defined in relation to Jesus. Because sin is like this. Sin is living apart from God and choosing my own path, or it's rejecting Jesus as Savior and Lord and serving something else or trying to be my own Savior. And I can do that by having no moral rules or by trying to follow all the moral rules. And really, it gets at this question. As an example, if we were to ask the question, why might I lie? Why might I tell a lie? And regardless of whether you grew up modern American without any religion, or you grew up in a traditional culture with religion, both would probably say there's something wrong with lying. But all of us have lied at some point or another, and the question is why? I might lie in order to get something I really want, because I think it'll help advance my career, or it's the only way I can get this girl, or it's the way I know that people will keep approving of and liking me if I tell a lie in, the, in a given instance. Another reason why I might lie is to protect something that I, I guard really dear, I hold really tightly. I might want to protect my reputation, or I might even lie to avoid consequences. As an example, you might decide that your kids are the most important thing in your life and their happiness. You might lie to make sure they could get on the team. We will lie if there's something else that's driving us, something enticing us or something we're guarding, something besides Jesus that is Lord and Savior of our life. The lie is the external, but the motivations of the heart and who is truly Lord and Savior is what drives it. As a Christian, we could even say, yes, we're going to step into these things as well. We're going to live apart from God sometimes. And the question goes something like this, maybe another way to word it is, are we serving God or using God? Is Jesus really your Savior or in some way are you? And the only way to really answer that is what happens when opportunity or pressure is applied to your life. You see, I could say I'm a Christian and Jesus is my Savior until there's an enticement to do something else that I really want, and then I'm quickly going to flee Jesus. Or until pressure and challenge and trial comes, and then I don't know if I trust Jesus anymore. Holy Week, which is the week from Palm Sunday up to the cross and Good Friday, was a week when the disciples were dealing with all sorts of pressure. They start the week riding into Jerusalem with all the hope and joy that Jesus is king and he's coming to establish his kingdom and they get to be a part of it. But by midweek, they realize things are going wrong. By the end of the week, Jesus is arrested and by Good Friday, he's executed. 
And the disciples are put under pressure. And the question is, who really are they serving? Judas, as all of us know, betrays Jesus. He has all sorts of external actions he's been doing, but he has a different internal motivation that leads him into betrayal. And we're going to look at that. But also, Peter and the disciples, they claim they want to serve Jesus. They want to follow him. But they end up abandoning him in order to save themselves. It's a really dark story when you read it by itself. But what Mark, the gospel writer, wants us to do is to implicate ourselves, to see ourselves in the place of Judas and of Peter and of the other disciples, that we are no different, that under the same enticements and pressures, we would and we do the same thing. So let's look at this passage, look at the heaviness of what sin is and how it plays out in our lives and what Jesus offers us through himself. So Judas and Peter are the two I really want to look at this morning. Now with Judas, we get the guy who, you don't name your kid Judas. It's, it's gotten a bad rap because Judas was a betrayer. And we see this explicitly in verse 10 and 11. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, in order to betray Jesus to the chief priests. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him, to betray Jesus. According to one of the other gospel writers, Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And you have to ask the question, as many commentators have throughout the centuries, why? Why does he do it? Some have speculated that he had an idea, a vision of the kingdom. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem to establish a kingdom, and he thought, hey, this is great. I get to be the chief treasurer in the new administration. But by midweek, he realizes that's not what's going to happen. And so he finds another way out to get attached to power. He appeases the religious leaders. Others have said it was simply money that he was after. And this is corroborated by one of the gospel accounts that said he was the one who held the purse strings for the disciples. He held the money, and he was often known to take some for himself, or at least later on they realized that, that he was simply serving money. The reality is we don't know why Judas does it. What is his motivation? But it seems, if you trace his life and what he does here at the end, that he was never truly serving Jesus. He was using Jesus to serve himself. And when serving Jesus no longer paid, he went and found something that would pay better. Jesus predicts his betrayal. And we see this in verse 18 and 19 and 20. Jesus is there with the disciples in the Last Supper, the upper room. They're celebrating Passover. And Jesus says, as they are reclining at table and eating the Passover supper, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. You know what's amazing is even as he knows that it's Judas who's going to betray him, Jesus does not out him right there. This is an act of mercy. He doesn't shame him publicly. He doesn't say, this guy is going to betray me. Get him now. He's basically looking around the room and he says, one of you will betray me. He knows full well that Judas knows. It's him. And he's hoping in this final act of mercy to Judas that Judas will, will come forward, will repent, say, it's me. Forgive me. 
He's giving him an opportunity to repent. He does the same with us. God doesn't out us right away in our sin. He lets us walk into it more and more. Eventually, the consequences will catch up to us. But he wants us to come mercifully, with his mercy extending, saying, I know what you're doing. Come, and I will forgive you. I will restore you. And even at this point, there's a chance for Judas to be restored. But his heart is hard. One of you is going to betray me. And what's amazing is all the disciples are wondering, is it I? Is it I? Peter, of course, it's not recorded as well in this gospel as in the others, is the one who is famously very afraid that it's him. And he's, he leans over to John and he says, ask him who it is. And so, now the way the description is, is that they're all lying on their, their left arm to eat food with their feet behind them in a circle around a floor level table. Jesus is at the head. Just to his right is John, the beloved disciple. Just to the right of John is Peter. So Peter leans back to John and says, ask him who it is. And I think he's probably crossing his fingers saying, I hope it's not me, I hope it's not me. John then leans back to Jesus and says, Jesus, who is it? And Jesus says, the one in another one of the the gospel passages, the one I dip the bread and hand it to. He dips the bread and hands it, and the implication is that it's somebody directly on the other side of Jesus. Meaning, as Jesus is at the head, the two positions of honor are being held by John and Judas. Think about that for a moment. Judas is in a position of honor, and none of the disciples think that's wrong. None of them say, well, he's the betrayer. Why is he getting that place of honor? There must have been something in Judas's life throughout the course of his time with Jesus that would have made the disciples not think anything differently of Judas. In fact, they probably expected Judas to be in this position of honor at a Passover. Nothing about it confuses them. They don't say, wait, why does he get the place of honor? That's Judas. In other words, his entire life, as far as they had seen, gave no indication that he was the betrayer. His external actions were very good, as any of ours can be, even as they hide the true motivations of our heart. You know, you can do all the right things externally, but what's really in your heart? Judas, it seems, is using Jesus all along. He looked like a disciple and follower of Jesus, but in his heart, he was serving something else. You know, I don't know why you're here today or if you would say you're a Christian, but any of us can say we're a Christian. And in fact, going to church, being a part of a church, being a Christian can in some circles be useful and even helpful. It's good morals for your kids to grow up in. It makes you feel better. It's a good place to ha- it's a good thing to have like, you know, on your resume, joining clubs. This is a club to join. But if Christianity is only something useful and helpful, then when the pressure's on and the enticement is there, you too will betray Jesus. You will abandon him too. Just as Judas does. Judas, of course, is not the only one. Peter is next in line for us. Now, Peter falls under all the disciples here. When Jesus says in verse 27... All of you will fall away. He says to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Peter says, 
Even though all of them fall away, I will not. Peter is so proud. He, he has such fervor for Jesus, but he doesn't know the depth of his own sinfulness, the capability of his own depravity. In verse 30, Jesus takes it a step further and says directly to Peter, Peter, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter says publicly in front of the disciples so everyone can hear and emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He's basically making an oath. He's swearing allegiance to Jesus in a public setting. He's making an oath before all of them saying, I will never deny you, Jesus. But again, Peter has not realized the full depth of the sinfulness of his own heart. And the story, as many of you know, turns very dark and sad for Peter because Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane. Peter follows the arresting party back to the chief priest's house and a servant girl, 12, 13 years old, asks him, weren't you one of the ones with him? And he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. He's asked again, weren't you with him? He denies it again. And then the third time, he's asked by this group of people who don't really have any power, aren't you with him? Weren't you one of the people with Jesus? And we read Peter's response. He says in verse 71 that he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now he's swearing an oath again publicly. The very same thing he had just done a few hours earlier with the disciples. I promise, I swear in front of all of you, I will never. And again, I'm swearing on the name of God. I don't know this man. And I think that's probably the reality. He doesn't know this man. But he also doesn't know this man. He doesn't know his own heart. And as you read through, looking at Judas' betrayal as he's sitting there in the place of honor, or, or Peter claiming to be aligned with Jesus and then betraying him, denying him just a few hours later, what Mark wants us to see is ourselves. He's asking the question, are we any different? And Mark would say, no, we're not. You know, it's Peter who helps Mark write this gospel. And Peter includes this story in it. He allows Mark to write it. And Mark even includes himself. We didn't read it in the passage. He's implicated because as the disciples flee and run away, it also says that at one point, this young man who was part of the disciples' crowd in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane runs away naked. They grab hold of his cloak. It rips off of him and he runs naked, which is a horribly shameful thing besides being embarrassing. And he includes this because it's recorded about him. Mark and Peter are both willing to expose their own sinfulness and shame. Because they say all of us are capable of abandoning Jesus. He says in verse 27 to the disciples, you will all fall away. When temptation comes, when the trial and enticement comes, your devotion to me will not be able to stand. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to the disciples, watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
Now, that word temptation is a Greek word that has two meanings in English. We think about it almost always only as one, temptation as enticement to do something wrong. But temptation also means trial or challenge or difficulty, testing. Temptation is both enticement and difficulty. It's enticement to choose to do something, and it's challenge and pressure being put on you, testing you. Judas was enticed by 30 pieces of silver. Peter was under difficulty when confronted by the servant girl and the others. Sin, if we're looking at how this plays out in our lives, is denying the sufficiency of Jesus, being drawn away in temptation by enticement or by difficulty. Don't just think Ten Commandments. Sin is Jesus' presence in my life and Jesus' salvation is not as desirable as the silver. Jesus is not as good as my kids being happy. Jesus is not as good as sex. It's something out there that I'm serving besides Jesus and saying Jesus is not sufficient. I need this. Or it's being put under pressure and testing and trial and not believing that Jesus is as powerful as the loss of my approval or my career or my health. When difficulty comes, will I still trust in Jesus? In other words, all sin is selling Jesus for something else or fleeing from Jesus for our own selfish desires. It's serving self, like Judas does, or trying to save ourselves, like Peter and the disciples do. And to put it in a summary, all sin is betraying, denying, and abandoning Jesus. And what the gospel makes very clear is that none of us, none of us can say, I'd never do that. In every one of our hearts, the Bible says, is the potential for a Judas. Given the right amount, we would sell Jesus for cash too. And the summary statement is there in verse 50, after he's arrested, and they all left him and fled. All of us have left him and fled. And in the same situation, we would do the same. Now, that's a downer. Is there anything good in any of this? And obviously the answer is yes. The gospel means good news and there is good news. Because in the midst of this betrayal and this denial and this abandonment, there is good news. Jesus was abandoned and forsaken for us. All of his friends fell away. The father abandoned him for us. You know, here at CCV, we talk about being an extended family. And it's one of my goals that over the next couple of years, we would learn what it is as a church to be an extended family so that no person here lacks family. Even if you don't live near your aunts or uncles or cousins or brothers or sisters, here you should be able to find a place where you have grandparents and brothers and sisters and children, people that you can raise and care for and love and be cared for by. And that's because I think we are made for that. We are made for the sort of depth and breadth of community that is very hard to get in our transitional world. We're made for commitment to one another. 
And we're made to do that when times get hard. We've talked here about the ministry of presence. To be such friends with somebody, when they're going through a hard time, you are there and walking with them. You can't alleviate the pain, but you can walk with them in it and make it so that they are not alone. Here Jesus is on his most challenging night in the Garden of Gethsemane, waiting for the next day, the very morning that he would be crucified. And all he wants is his disciples to be his family. And he's abandoned by them, betrayed by them, handed over by them, denied by them. And I want you to see in that if any of you have dealt with betrayal by a spouse, being hurt by a family member, feeling abandoned by friends. If any of you knows what that's like, know that Jesus does too. He has walked in our footsteps. He has felt that sting of betrayal, the hurt and ache of family torn apart, of his friendships being scattered and abandoned. Jesus knows. Not only that, he knew a far deeper abandonment. One that started, and we hear it in his words of, in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there on his knees, and he's praying, Father, Abba, Father, he's talking to God as his Father, remove this cup from me. He's looking at the cross, and I'll say, he's not looking purely at the crucifixion. Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ is very good on the physical torture of crucifixion, but it misses the cosmic and eternal wrath of God that's being poured out on Jesus. It wasn't just a horrible, torturous death that Jesus was fearing. Many people have gone to deaths with far greater bravery than Jesus seems to show here. But in an indication of his words indicate that there's something more going on. He says, take this cup from me. He does not mean horrible, torturous death. Cup in an Old Testament context, meant the wrath and judgment of God for the sin of man. Take this cup from me, he's saying, may I not have to bear your wrath. And by wrath, he meant God removing his presence, God the Father removing his presence from Jesus the Son. Jesus had always and only known the presence of God the Father, from eternity until he's walking the earth and he's able to pray, Abba, Father. And he has a communion with Jesus that some of us have tasted. That sense that God is with you, God the Father loves you and is walking with you. Jesus is experiencing that always. And on top of that, he knows, Jesus knows, God the Father is the source of all good. You know, whether you believe in God or not, Things that are good and enjoyable in this world are a gift from God. Sunrises and sunsets and beautiful days at the beach and time with friends and laughter and good food, these are good gifts from God. A description in the Bible is that hell is the absence of God's presence. That doesn't mean, hey, we're going to all be down there partying, it's going to be great. It's the absence of all good and joy and pleasure. The absence of all that gives you comfort and hope and peace. And Jesus is on the cusp of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He anticipates that's what's about to fall on him. And the next day when he's hanging from the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's being crushed by the weight of God's absence from him. 
But this is good news for us. We have abandoned Jesus time and again. We deserve to be abandoned by God the Father. But instead, Jesus was abandoned in our place. He was forsaken. Abandoned by friends, forsaken by the Father, so that we who put our trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord might know the joy of God's presence and the assurance of God's love for us. You know, saving faith is recognizing that God's love and God's presence is better than any enticement, than any temptation. God's love and God's presence and what he offers through Jesus Christ is better than popularity or money or sex or chocolate cake. There's no OMG chocolate cake that is better than Jesus. God's love and presence through Jesus Christ is so powerful and lasting that no trial, no money trouble, no cancer, not even death, can take away the depth of joy that is possible when we taste God for us in Jesus Christ. So how do we experience it? How do we experience God's love and presence in Jesus? I don't have a full answer today. I'm just going to give us a starting point. I think a starting point that's actually pretty good for Holy Week. Holy Week is meant to be a time when you focus on the cross. And for the next several days, people around the globe will be fasting and praying, not in order just to become better people, but in order to focus on what Jesus did for us on the cross, to expose our sinfulness and our human weakness and fall on the mercy of the cross. And so I would say a good place to start, if you want to taste the goodness and presence of God for you, is to respond like Peter did to his own sin. What did Peter do? Verse 72 says, he broke down and he wept. He realized he had denied and abandoned Jesus. And he's repentant. He's broken because he knows that he didn't even know the depth of his own sin. And he finally starts to admit it. And what's amazing is, according to the Gospel of John, after his resurrection, Peter is restored. Jesus forgives him. He forgives him not because Peter goes around and tries to do acts of penance. He forgives him because he has died on the cross for Peter's sin. And Peter admits his sin. And that's all it takes. Acknowledging our sinfulness not just our sins. We have nothing to hide, no grounds for superiority or self-righteousness, and we weep for our sin, deeply grateful for the mercy and grace and forgiveness and love of the cross. And that ends up leading us not to a life of morose sorrow, but to a life of joy and worship. When you weep for your sin and you point it towards the cross, you are met by the mercy and grace and love of Jesus. And you find joy, joy that can overcome the loss of good things in your life, that can push away enticements that are not Jesus, that can even face death and say, I have Jesus and that's all I need. You know, as we end our service today, we are actually going to point, the whole service points to the cross We're going to end with the Lord's Supper, and at the very end, we're going to have the reading of the Passion Narrative. It's a sober and somber reading. 
But don't let it just be a sober and somber reading. Let it cause you to weep. During this Holy Week, take a moment to weep. If not literally, at least metaphorically, weep for your sin. Weep for the sins of the world around you. Christians are so good at being judgmental with the world, we should be weeping for the world and weeping for ourselves along with it. Weep for sorrow and finally weep for joy. Because on the far side of the cross is redemption and resurrection and Easter. And there is hope and there is eternal life and there's forgiveness for every sin, every betrayal, every denial, every abandonment you have ever done or will do. Weep for joy for the grace of the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? For sin. And that means for me and for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in this week as we look to your cross and to your resurrection, give us pause to sit and kneel and fall before the cross, to break down and weep for our sin. But give us the grace to see in Jesus and the good gift of the cross, forgiveness, not carrying guilt, not trying to amend our lives, but simply falling on the mercy of Jesus Christ who offers us forgiveness. Let us look to the cross and find our hope and our joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Strength 
is tried victory remains with blood Jesus our Lord is crucified Jesus our Lord is crucified the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and swear, Not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for him. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests had stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in for the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. 
and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with them they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. When I Sorrow meet 
Yeah. 